I need a weapon. Something big. Yours! Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this week to talk about The Expendables 2, occasionally known as Back for War. Is that really the subtitle to it? Sometimes. It's listed that way on IMDb, uh, but if you look at the movie itself, it just calls itself Expendables 2, so I'm wondering if it was an overseas thing, then they added it on for maybe, I don't know, Blu-ray releases or something? (laughs) Well, if anyone out there knows, uh, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Expendables 2 was, I think, a given that it was going to happen. The first one made quite a bit of money and delivered, I think, mostly on what people wanted. And so they thought, well, I mean, this is going to work again, right? And the first one made, like, I think $100 million domestic. How could this one not make money? I mean, it did reasonably well. Tony, do you remember seeing it for your first time? I do. I think I went to see it in the theaters. Um, yeah, you did with me. That's right. I was trying to think. <laughs> I, I was trying to think. There was someone next to me. I don't remember <laughs> really enjoying their company very much. But yeah, I did go see it with you in the theaters when it came out. And what was your take on it at the time? I remember I was really excited that there was going to be more Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. You're right. And I was pleased on that account. But uh, I remember liking the movie. I remember thinking about about the same as, as the first film. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm about the same. I went in very excited to see Van Damme. Could not have cared less about Chuck Norris being in the movie. But Are like, you kidding? Nah. But Van Damme, we'll get into Chuck Norris later, but Van Damme was like a big deal for me. So that I was super excited about. But I remember being a little bummed that Stallone wasn't directing this time. Yeah, that's that's true. And I remember being uh, a little bit upset that Mickey Rourke wasn't making a comeback. Yeah, definitely. I was excited that Liam Hemsworth was there, though. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I recall walking out being like, yeah, I enjoyed it. But I also really didn't have any memories of it past maybe the hour after I saw it. No, to be honest, the only thing about this movie that I actually remembered before watching it again was the scenes with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Chuck Norris. Right. Well, so as I said, the movie did fairly well. So it cost about $100 million to make. Domestic made $85 million. So you're like, okay, well, that's definitely not that great. Thank but God for international yes, markets. Foreign sales, it did $230 million for a total of $315 million. Not a bad return on investment. No, not at all. And uh, Expendables 1, while it did better domestically, its total was 274 So the Expendables was actually on the rise with part two. Like, it was making more worldwide. It's actually the 10th highest grossing movie for both Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Cracked the top 10, not bad. Yeah, and uh, for the year domestically, it was number 36. It was sandwiched right between The Campaign. Do you remember that movie? No, not a bit. I think it was Zach Galifianakis and Will Ferrell, maybe? (laughs) And uh, Wrath of the Titans, the very ill-advised sequel to the ill-advised Clash of the Titans remake. Wasn't Mickey Rourke in that one? I wish. (laughs) Um, But it did beat the Total Recall remake, which is sort of Arnie-themed, which was like number 55. Well, there you go. Real Arnold Schwarzenegger beats Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right. But you look at this year. This was a huge year where you can really see that franchises have taken over. 
and a sort of B-level pleasure like The Expendables 2 just does not stand a chance. So listen to this top 10. So number one, with 623 million, you had the first Avengers. And of course, this is 2012 we're talking about. Uh, in number two, you have The Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Again, a huge phenomenon. Number three, you have The Hunger Games, which launches a big craze. Number four, Skyfall, the highest grossing James Bond movie. Uh, at least not adjusted for inflation. Number five, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Which, interestingly enough, is apparently not ended yet. <laughs> as lame as that movie was, and that trilogy was, hugely awaited that first part was. Like, people went to see it. I think I went opening weekend. Uh, in number six was Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, the closure to this franchise that made a huge amount of money. And interestingly, the year after this, glitter sales crashed. <laughs> in number seven, you had The Amazing Spider-Man, which is the first part of the really bad Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. But nonetheless, Spider-Man brings in money. At number eight, you had Brave, which is Pixar, the one like original movie, I guess, except for number nine, Ted, the uh, Seth MacFarlane movie, which... While it is, I guess, a standalone movie, it does feel like it's very much riding the coattails of Seth MacFarlane's like Family Guy kind of humor. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. And then number 10, Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted, which did $216 million. So you can see that, like, that top 10, there is a huge amount of money being made by those 10 movies. And like an Expendables 2 is kind of a minnow in that uh, pond. A little bit, but uh, you know, I don't know if it had the same target audience as Madagascar 3. <laughs> Although you know, there was some irresponsible parents who took like six-year-olds to see this movie. Oh, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I don't know why I hope so, <laughs> but a man can dream. So this movie was really interesting in the development in that originally they wanted to partner with a Chinese distributor to, I guess, kind of cover the budget because this movie's getting more and more expensive, but domestically they're kind of just breaking even. And so they went with one originally who they haven't named, but the deal would have been that it would have been set all in China and that Donnie Yen would have joined the cast. So anyways, the deal fell apart, but they wound up with another financier and another Chinese company. However, Donnie Yen was not part of the package. He was actually not interested once he read the script. <laughs> he was like, don't include me in your deals. <laughs> Donnie, you got an eye for quality. Yeah, he winds up in like Rogue One instead <laughs> a couple <laughs> years later. Far better decision. Um, but the casting is interesting because a lot of people walking out of the first movie had like their dream list of what action stars they wanted to see in, in Expendables 2. Van Damme was obviously on the list. I don't know that Chuck Norris was. I don't know. I mean, if you're going to go and dig up the uh, the action stars of Days of Yore, isn't Chuck Norris up there? I mean, you would think, but I feel like he wasn't on the tip of the tongue for people. I feel like you were hearing a lot more Van Damme and Seagal. I think this was the heyday of Chuck Norris jokes. Probably. Yeah, well, I think it was. But, um, you know, according to kind of rumors and scuttlebutt and uh, quotes at the time, some of the actors that they were talking to were like uh, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, but that fell through for both of them. Uh, Antonio Banderas was too busy. <laughs> he was like, oh, bring me back for part three, guys. I'm not a part two guy. <laughs> uh, Jackie Chan wanted to do it, but was too busy shooting a movie called CZ-12, which or CZ-12, which I'm not really sure what that is. Um, that's a Hong Kong movie, I think. Charlie Sheen was rumored to be joining the cast as a CIA agent hunting Bruce Willis, because Bruce Willis at certain points... Uh, was going to be maybe a villain. But he was busy going on Twitter storms and uh, talking about tiger blood, I think, at the time. Yes. Uh, Mickey Rourke was on board and then bailed at the last minute. 
And this is a really weird one. Bruce Willis was quoted as saying Steve Austin would return. But wasn't he burned to death in the first one? He was. So I don't know why Bruce Willis is even bringing up Stone Cold Steve Austin in an interview. That seems like a really weird thing for him to bring up. Like, do you think he has any relationship with Stone Cold Steve Austin? I don't know. I mean, maybe they hang out together. Maybe they maybe they play chess together or something like that. <laughs> Backgammon. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, though. You look at this list of actors who were purported to join. I don't know that a lot of these were high on fans lists either. Jackie Chan for sure. But I don't know that people were like, I gotta see Travolta in Expendables 2. It was a shame they couldn't get Jet Li back. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> see you later, alligator. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Nicolas Cage makes sense, though, because he was a huge action star around that era in the, in the late 90s kind of thing. Like, he was doing movies like Con Air and the Face Rock. Off. Yeah, so I am I can understand why Nick Cage was on the tip of their tongue. But, yeah, a lot of these never wound up happening, period. You never saw Jackie Chan in Part 3, either. So, you know, what could have been, I guess. But, ultimately, the Kelsey move... Grammer, I guess, stepped in to fill the Jackie Chan role. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the big thing here was Schwarzenegger was coming back in a bigger role. And, you know, he wound up shooting for four days instead of, like, two hours. Yeah, although he is in the movie for quite a bit more than the first one. You can tell, though, that they were definitely shooting around him. But, to be fair, you can tell they're shooting around a lot of actors in this movie. And you referenced Jet Li. He was actually busy shooting a movie called Flying Swords of Dragon Gate. And so he only had, like, a few days to spare for Expendables 2. I would be curious what the deal-making was like, though, because I have to believe that uh, Expendables 2 would probably pay better. Wouldn't you think? Who knows? Apparently, I mean, if Expendables 2 is making this much money overseas, who knows what a uh, Flying Swords of Dragon Gate is making overseas. Yeah, it's possible. I, I, I have no sense at all of what a foreign production, uh, I'm assuming it's a foreign production, yeah. uh, would make in its home country. Yeah. Originally, Simon West, the director who came on to do this movie, uh, was going to shoot this thing as a PG-13. Stallone warned fans in advance of release that it would be a PG-13. And then in post-production, they went in and added all the blood and gore. Probably a good idea. But you could tell that this movie was a PG-13 when they shot it, and that, like, the actors aren't really swearing at all. There's a lot of terms they use that you, that you think, like, that's a weird phrase of that. Like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger uses the yippee ki He does not use the motherfucker at the end. And you're like, okay, if they were shooting for PG-13, that makes sense. Yeah, although you'd think if they're going to go ahead and add all the blood and gore and post, they, they couldn't get Arnold Schwarzenegger to leave a voicemail that says motherfucker. <laughs> And just work that in at some point. <laughs> it would be like the Hercules in New York dubbing. <laughs> exactly. Get that guy in. <laughs> and, I, and I guess we should take this opportunity, though, uh, for those of you who have decided to join Arnie Geddon at Expendables 2 for your first <laughs> podcast for A some wise reason. choice. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome. Uh, we are going to be... I don't know if this movie can be spoiled in the, in the sense of spoilers, but we, ha- we have watched it. We encourage people to watch it in advance because we will be talking about things throughout the movie. And what I've found is, while we try to go linearly, mm-hmm. we uh, generally jump around all over the place and end up talking about Cam's pets and that kind of thing. Of course, yeah. So, <laughs> Tony, why don't you sum up? What is this movie about? Well, this movie, The Expendables, are brought back together under Barney Ross for, uh, you know, not maybe not one last job, but an easy payday. And 
Are you in, talking about the actors or are you talking about the characters? <laughs> Both. There's a lot of uh, the, the, the Venn diagram between the characters and the Expendables and the actors is basically just a circle. <laughs> the, the, um, they're brought back for, for one easy payday or at least to fix some, something that's kind of alluded to by Bruce Willis in the film. And uh, ultimately one of their own gets lost sadly in combat right and the, the character no one wants to see go <laughs> and then they have then they get to you know engage in a combination revenge mission slash saving the world from nuclear armageddon also you know helping the plight of the villagers oh i forgot about that yeah, they, yeah. along the way they uh help the villagers uh i can't remember where they were but they helped them it was uh, albania i believe wasn't it was it set like were the were those villagers in albania well, we'll get to that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, You never really know where it takes place, but anytime they tell you what location it's at, it's some place that you almost certainly have never been. Yeah. <laughs> the movie was shot in Bulgaria, but yeah, it's a little confusing in that regard. So, okay, I think this movie opens spectacularly. I absolutely loved the opening, which is them... I don't even know what they're trying to do. They're trying to just lay waste to an entire army of guys, rescue Arnold Schwarzenegger, and get out. It is not at all clear. I don't think they were even trying to rescue Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're trying to rescue some uh, nameless Chinese billionaire. Right. And uh, Ch Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Trench just happens to be there. He's on the same job and has been captured. Yes. And, uh, you know, what did you think of this opening? I mean, I didn't really understand what was going on. I had a very loose appreciation of the laws of physics <laughs> and of uh, combat tactics, I think. But there was it, no tactics going on. <laughs> but it was certainly spectacular. The death count in the opening scene was really something to behold. I think if you stood there with one of those little hand clickers, you'd get uh, <laughs> you carpal, carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I love that it is just mass overkill. It's actually kind of absurd that they wanted a PG-13 rating. Because <laughs> this is a lot of death. <laughs> By the way, it opens in Nepal. so uh, Right. Which, um, I mean, I haven't been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for telling us that. But <laughs> but don't, didn't you feel like you had been after watching this opening? Absolutely. I felt like I don't need to go now. <laughs> what are your favorite parts of this opening? Because... I mean, there are several. I like how it's a multi-phase action sequence, and it involves every vehicle known to man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed when uh, Barney Ross, played by Sylvester Stallone, when he, uh, you know, they've just laid waste. They obviously have a lot of armament. They're well prepared for this mission. But for some reason, the best way to destroy a helicopter in flight <laughs> is to ghost ride a motorcycle through the windshield of it. Yeah. That was nice. I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the zip lining down the live power lines. The zip lining is the greatest. I absolutely love this. I don't think I've ever seen an action movie where people zip line for like five minutes straight. <laughs> down live power lines yeah in a straight line like it's not even a curved line and again i'm no i'm no electrician i'm no electrical technician or technologist but i'm pretty sure that those power lines were they power lines they absolutely were power lines they, they were, were okay they were sparking <laughs> they were attached in the in the wide scenes to electrical towers or transmission right. towers and in the close scenes, you couldn't really see that, you know, they cut the what they were actually ziplining on out of the frame. Right. Um, but, you know, in my experience, power lines are, are usually connected to things, usually transmission towers, insulators, that kind of thing. So <laughs> the ability to 
uh, zip line down a live power line to begin with. I don't know if it's that advisable. Right. Um, but I don't know if it's that possible uh, to do. Well, I appreciate that they, you know, just went past the point of believability because I thought it was a blast. And I just loved watching all of these characters just sliding through, just mowing people down. And I have to feel like, too, if you're sliding on a cable that's not even curved, it's literally a straight cable, and you are firing, like, a high-power gun in front of you, that might actually stop you from moving. But not if the line is energized and the, ele- <laughs> the electricity is pushing you forward or something like that. Uh, I also enjoyed, uh, we got a laugh about it while we were watching it, the... Um, Liam Hemsworth uh, keeps popping up. He's the new addition to the team, Billy the Kid. Do you think they thought they'd hired Chris Hemsworth? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, he's the new addition to the team. And You're like, hey, oh, hey, welcome, Liam. I hear you got a special set of skills. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> one i loved you and stop my bubble shoot <laughs> anyways this is a, i think a pre-hunger games liam hemsworth they were both released the same year this would have been released i guess maybe like four or five months before hunger games but he i mean he plays the the sniper which i actually thought was a nice addition to the team you, yeah you, you know you have the diverse skill sets of the expendables why not have a sniper although he did kind of remind me of um I think it was Tom Sawyer in uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> was that Shane West, I think, maybe? It might have been. I don't remember. One of those forgettable actors. Uh, Isn't there like a sniper in part three as well? Uh, I can't recall. We're going to revisit that. Yeah, one, I'm though. looking forward to that. Kind was of. it Kelsey Grammer? <laughs> no, it wasn't Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> but, um, he was the heavy artillery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He took over for Terry Crews. Yeah. Uh, but uh i just liked how whenever they needed when it, it happened several times in one scene where they were kind of kind of jammed they'd been chased by a car or a boat or by guys on foot or they were in the jungle or wherever they happened to be yeah uh liam hemsworth was there sniping yes um without really explaining that he had moved anywhere although right all of the set pieces seemed to move along. And he was like taking out bad guys who were on high-powered boats just flying through the water. And from the look of the shot, he was hitting them head-on. Like it looked like some of them were being hit head-on by the bullets, which really didn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things. The, the opening scene really, I thought, set the pace for the movie, which was... Uh, you know what? Don't ask too many questions. Yeah. They're not going to get you anywhere. Just sit back and enjoy the carnage. And by the way, here's some jet skis. I got to be honest. This was my favorite part of the movie. I actually think the first, you know, what, 10, 15 minutes of The Expendables, uh, part two, it sets a high watermark for what this movie is going to be that it can never live up to. Because it really does feel just a variety of, you know, modes of transportation and different types of action dynamics were seen on screen. I, I was like, okay, this stuff's really fun and crazy, and I feel like the movie could never deliver on that again. Kind of like some of the lesser Bonds, which open with an amazing stunt in the pre-credit sequence, and then they never really have that much to deliver after that. It is a great action scene, I think, not just for The Expendables 2, but it, it, it it's a great action scene when you compare it to... Uh, other action scenes of its era yeah it's a lot of fun too and i love the bit where jet lee is just like punching a guy's face 
and there's just blood spraying everywhere. <laughs> well, you know what was really nice, actually? Because that was one thing that the Expendables, the first one, didn't do. And I think we talked about that in our episode, was Jet Li didn't really have enough to do in the first one. And he, <laughs> I mean, in the second one... <laughs> Careful what you say there. <laughs> he wasn't there for very long, but I thought while he was there... Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to see more of him. Well, in the first one, what we had talked about in our previous podcast was that he's such a great... Uh, athletic and physical actor and performer yeah that uh it was weird that they had him talking which right more than fighting which is talking's not his strong suit in an english language uh action film no definitely not one of my gripes with the first expendables was that you know sylvester stallone i think shoots large-scale action really well and can get a real intensity to it but i feel like when it comes to -to hand-to-hand combat he struggled and a lot of time it felt a little choppy and so when Jet Li was doing martial arts, it wasn't conveyed in the most exciting way. Whereas I feel like Simon West actually knows what he's doing in that regard and can shoot hand-to-hand action really well. I mean, we see it later, far later in the movie with Jason Statham versus Scott Atkins. Like, you can really see he can stage a, like, martial arts fight in a really exciting way. Yeah, well, I mean, Simon West, uh, I mean, he has a, a fairly decent... Had, well, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you gotta. Um... Well, why don't we just kind of go through a run through of Simon West, and I want to hear your thoughts on some of his filmography. So, I mean, Simon West explodes onto the screen with the movie Con Air, and were you as big a fan of Con Air as I was? I, I loved Con Air. I yeah, thought it was great. Me too. Probably, like... probably one of one of, if not the best Nicolas Cage action piece. Really, not The Rock. Ah, it's it's a kind of a tie between those two, I think. Like when The Rock relaunched sort of these big explosive action movies under the Bruckheimer banner, I really had a lot of hope for what was going to come, and Con Air delivered on that. Like I really loved Con Air, and then after that they went the way of like Armageddon and stuff like that, and I just lost enthusiasm for them. But I felt like Con Air was actually a really good one. But Simon West followed those up with like The General's Daughter and Laura Croft Tomb Raider. Now I saw both of them. I thought they were both terrible. Did you see either? Uh, I didn't see The General's Daughter. I thought Tomb Raider was so-so. Okay. And then he was not asked back for Tomb Raider 2, and so he did the remake of the horror movie When a Stranger Calls, which is one of the worst horror remakes <laughs> ever committed to film. <laughs> I, it I, I is haven't seen awful. It. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I haven't seen it. So then Simon West, he's stranded. He's just doing TV movies for the next few years. He comes back with a Jason Statham movie, actually, called The Mechanic, which is a remake of the Charles Bronson movie. Did you see The Mechanic? I did see The Mechanic. I, I thought The Mechanic was actually pretty good. The Mechanic 2, uh, not so much, but the first one I, I enjoyed. Yeah, I thought it was generic. The Charles Bronson one is pretty good. Uh, the remake is pretty bland. I didn't really like it. I actually kind of like the, the Mechanic 2 more because it's at least weird, and Tommy Lee Jones is just out of his mind in that movie. But, uh, yeah, and then Simon West did Expendables 2, of course. He follows that up. It's weird. Expendables 2 is a pretty big hit, uh, but it sure didn't seem to get him much juice because he moves on, and everything he has after that is, like, straight-to-video movies. Like, he did uh, the Nick Cage movie Stolen, which I haven't seen. Did you? No, I haven't seen it. No, and the the, uh, Jason Statham movie Wild Card, which I also haven't seen. And then something called Stratton, and then he's got a movie called Gunshy with Antonio Banderas, I think. Again, it's like he's just kind of stranded in video land, and it's weird. I don't think it's because he's a bad director. I actually think if you look at The Expendables 2, he can shoot action really well. And I watch a lot of really badly shot action movies nowadays. I don't understand why he's working in home video 
Whereas, you know, Olivier Megaton, who did some of the Taken movies and some of the Transporter movies, he's terrible, but he's still working theatrically. I Like, I don't understand how that works. I think I enjoyed all the Taken movies. Oh, brother. <laughs> and I probably enjoyed all the Transporter movies, too. But uh, but that's kind of getting, getting off uh, yeah, a bit yeah. of a tangent. But there's a, a shot, I believe, in Taken 2, which is amazing, where it's like Liam Neeson jumping over a fence and there's something like 20 cuts. <laughs> It's really amazing. But I feel like Simon West did a good job with this movie overall. Like, I, I, I thought the action scenes, both in terms of the large-scale action and the, the hand-to-hand fighting stuff, um, was uh, quite a jump above the, the first Expendables, actually. I also feel like this movie's more polished feeling than the first Expendables. Yeah, I agree. I, I remember the, the first one felt very dark, mm-hmm. uh, very very shaky and too many weird fast cuts this one had a lot of fast cuts but yeah. but they seemed to make a little bit more sense in the context and they were they you know things were cut to give a little bit of momentum to the film rather than the the sense that things were just being cut kind of at at random i did appreciate the kind of the slicker look to the action i think it was very helpful in just differentiating between the two because this one could have just felt like the same thing over again and at least with a bit of a different directorial style it gives it a little more energy kind of like the james bond movies where they bring on a different director each time because the formula is going to be the same especially with these expendables movies they are really similar you watch this one you realize like this is almost the same movie as the previous one in a lot of ways yeah if there's one place where the action does uh falter a little bit throughout I thought, and maybe it has to do with them making it uh, an R-rated movie from a PG-13. Yeah, it's the I think, and we had the same gripe with the first one. It's the computer-generated blood in a lot of cases. Um, I think is it really detracts. Yeah, from the impact of the scenes and the uh, and there's a couple places some computer-generated smoke and fire where it's uh, it's actually hard to believe that they were that they had effects that were that poor in a movie uh, of this budget when it was released. Right. I had a question for you, though. This movie, it's, like, really professional-looking, but did you feel like it... I don't know. In some ways, this is a weird movie for me in that this movie is, in terms of its technical capabilities, I think better than the first movie, but I would say I like the first one more because the first one just due to being kind of unpolished, a little bit ramshackle in places, it had so much more weirdness to offer. Like, it really felt like when you know, look at, like, the Mickey Rourke monologues <laughs> and just some of the crazy banter, awkward acting. I felt like that movie was just that much more fun because of those elements. Whereas, like, I felt with this one, they kind of stripped that stuff out. Like, even Randy Couture, who had... Some truly nightmarish line deliveries in part one. Like, in part two, he's fine. Like, he's just totally unexceptional, but he's fine. Like, I didn't feel like... Although at one point he did declare himself as having 20-20 hearing. That's that's true. That's more the, the dialogue. But I felt like the delivery, it was it was whatever. It was pedestrian. It was acceptable. Whatever. But I didn't feel like this movie offered the kind of the craziness of the first one. Yeah, maybe, and I th- I think um, maybe Mickey Rourke being uh, absent from the film is a big part of that. He definitely added a certain kind of unhinged quality <laughs> to it, and replacing him with I don't know who re- who could be considered replacing with you know maybe the Maggie character. Well, I mean Liam Neeson had the big monologue, so Liam Neeson. I'm sorry, <laughs> Liam Hemsworth had the big monologue. <laughs> 
What did you think of Liam Hemsworth's monologue? Like, because that is really his big moment. Put it this way, he's no Mickey Rourke. (laughs) No, he's not. I've never actually seen a Liam Hemsworth performance I liked. Um, Because I'm thinking, I didn't like him in Hunger Games, and I didn't like him in Independence Day 2. So I can't say he was particularly exciting to see here either. But I guess, you know, it's fitting that he's killed off quickly. But I do think this movie has a problem. A big problem. What's that? And that it's based around this, you know, Stallone character, Bonnie Ross. Wanting revenge for the death of Liam Hemsworth the whole movie. And I had a hard time ever caring about Liam Hemsworth. So it, you know, really takes the uh, the, the gravitas of Barney Ross's struggle <laughs> out of the movie. Like it really sucks the energy well, out. Well, if you can just accept Liam Hemsworth's death as kind of a, you know, a vengeance MacGuffin. Right. You can just kind of move past it. I actually, you know, you kind of hit the halfway point in the movie and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, Billy's dead. I forgot about him. Right. Okay, well, let's just move into the cast, because I think that's where a lot of the fun comes with these movies. Let's just start with kind of the returning players. You know, Stallone, Jason Statham, you know, Jet Li, well, Jet Li's out quick, but Dolph Lundgren. You know, which ones really stood out to you out of the the, the main cast, the ones we've seen before? Well, I mean, I don't know what I can say that we haven't already said. You know, I don't think Stallone or Statham... Uh, did anything particularly different uh, in it this It felt film. like they had less buddy stuff, though, in this movie. Like, I felt like a lot of the fun with the first movie was the two of them playing off each other. Maybe a little bit. If, if anything, I mean, that's something that maybe this film did, rather than focusing on the team of the Expendables, which I think was the big appeal and the big draw of the first one was, you know, bringing all these action stars back together. Uh and then in the sequel, rather than continuing to focus on them and build their characters, they kind of focused more on the other cameo appearances or the other actors on Schwarzenegger and Willis and Chuck Norris. I mean, I guess, but, you know, they aren't in it that much. I guess for me, the thing is this movie, I like, I'll be honest, I didn't enjoy rewatching this one as much as I enjoyed rewatching the first one. And I think a big part of the problem for me is this movie is very much about Barney Ross. And he's so sullen and depressed through this movie. And I just kind of found it a bit of a bummer. Like, it doesn't have the high energy of the first one where, you know, these guys are just kind of bantering and joking around a lot of the movie. A lot of this is set on Sylvester Stallone being depressed about Liam Hemsworth and also really pissed off that Jason Statham is in a relationship. Yeah, there is a little bit of that, um, which I didn't really understand. I didn't either. It's like, how dare my, like, (laughs) 40-year-old co-worker have a girlfriend? You know, it's so weird. Well, a wife now. Well, she was, uh, was it a wife or a fiancé? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Charisma Carpenter returning? Yeah, for a brief, brief cameo. And even, like, Stallone is, like, shooting shade at her, calling her, like, a world-class cheater. And it's like, what the hell? That's a weird thing for you to say about someone else's wife or fiance. Yeah, like, he is really mopey about this. And you know what? If his character had been, like, 23 or 22, I might be like, okay, he's just immature. He's like a 60-year-old man. He's just very immature. (laughs) He's incredible. He's like a stunted adolescent Barney Ross. (laughs) That's why, like, this movie, he's, like, emo the whole time. I half expected him to be putting on mascara and listening to The Cure. (laughs) Well, it was nice to see Dolph Lundgren a little happier. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren is really uh, energized in this movie. Uh, I kind of liked how he was more of a villain in the first one. Like, that was really fun. It it definitely feels like he's having a lot of fun in the team unit this time, although he's incredibly rapey. (laughs) 
Yeah, and he you do get the impression that a lot of Dolph Lundgren's scenes are just kind of close-ups of him in cars yelling things yeah. at uh, at bad guys he's shot. You, you got the impression that maybe Dolph Lundgren came into the studio for a day or two on his own. Well, a lot of the movie feels like that. It's just like quick cuts to like Randy Couture or Terry Crews or Dolph Lundgren. Just like quick shots of them just going like, woo! <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> or like, get them! <laughs> you know, like just like quick like one-off lines they can throw out there while an explosion goes yeah. off. I thought Terry Crews uh, was pretty good returning as Hail Caesar. He had more to do this time. A little bit more to do. I thought that... Uh, Randy Couture as Toll Road. Why was he even in this movie? He had he had <laughs> nothing to do. He had like one little bit of dialogue again about his ears, uh, and also asking for coffee at one point. Uh, beyond that, I, like there's a part where like Dolph Lundgren is trying to hit on the the new female lead, uh, the actress Nan Yu playing Maggie, um, and uh, it's just like Randy Couture's with a group of people, and he's just reading a book, wearing glasses, and he's looking up, watching, and laughing. But he just feels like he's there to react to what other people are doing. He doesn't actually have a character or dialogue. Yeah, and it's kind of strange because I think in the first film he was kind of uh, he was kind of portrayed. I think, anyways. I mean, he, they had him reading, so I'm assuming he's the academic of the group. And they did that again here. They did that again here, but they also gave Dolph Lundgren uh, a master's degree in. Well, I guess not Chemical Dolph Lundgren. Right? I, I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, Gun, yeah. They gave Gunnar Jensen a master's degree in chemical engineering. Dolph Lundgren, of course, already has one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a whole bit yeah, where he's trying to make a bomb and it doesn't work, which I don't really know what that says about the character's chemical engineering. Yeah, what, one thing about the film and about the actors uh, and the interaction between them, and I don't know if it's if it's due to the actors themselves but it seems like there's a lot fewer jokes that just went totally over my head there was a lot of bad jokes yeah but not to the same degree as the first one where people would say things and i i literally had no idea in the first one if they were telling a joke or talking about something expository in the film or just Hallucinating. Yeah, hallucinating, exactly. <laughs> but which do you prefer? Do you prefer just these flat bad jokes, or did you like more of the first one, where the jokes are just like head-scratching oddities? Uh, I, I mean, personally, I like the head-scratching oddities. Me too. But uh, I'm glad in some ways that they kind of realize that this movie better be tightened up uh, a little bit. I think my favorite little bit of humor, maybe, and it's not funny, but it's, I guess, clever in a lunk-headed way is when Jason Statham is posing as a monk, and he says, like, I now pronounce you man and knife. <laughs> I kind of like that. That was goofy. It wasn't when uh, Barney Ross uh, tells uh, uh, Lee Christmas, you got the ego the size of a dinosaur. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's A-level scripting right there. Yeah, there was some really weird lines like that. You know, speaking of weird lines, though, let's get into um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Because Arnold Schwarzenegger, again, he's back. He's got more to do. We get to see him actually in action sequences this time. Briefly, did you enjoy seeing Arnold actually in action sequences in this movie? I thought the action sequences with him in it were actually pr pretty fun, pretty yeah. pretty high energy. Uh, you know, he was clearly using, uh, I think he was using an automatic shotgun that was clearly actually rocking him back and forth. Right. And I like the bit where him and Bruce Willis are in the like miniature car in the airport driving around shooting guys like it's a fun action sequence to see if you can only get arnold for like 
I guess, probably three days of action shooting. I think they found clever ways to have memorable action beats for him. But, and it's a big but. Yeah. What did you think of his lines? Yeah, that's why I said briefly, let's talk about the action. Because the lines, I think these may be the worst lines Arnold Schwarzenegger has ever had to deliver in a movie. I mean, he's had bad dialogue in some of his movies, like Hercules in New York or something. He doesn't even have dialogue in this movie. He has lines from previous movies. Yeah, and this is this is maybe the point where you know in the in the first movie it was maybe a little bit forgivable because you you know him and Bruce Willis were there as something of a cameo. Yeah, and I could have forgiven uh, him showing up in this movie and maybe delivering and I'll be back or you're terminated or, or something like that and then kind of moving on and and getting to the action scenes but I mean he makes the same self-referential jokes about three or four times it was like uh, watching uh, Killing Gunther again which we reviewed on a, a, a previous podcast where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is just there to kind of poke fun at Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah but at least in Killing Gunther they were using quotes that were at least some of them a little obscure like there was a couple from like predator that weren't necessarily the get to the chopper but here there's a bit where he's talking to bruce willis in that airport and it's brutal where he says like i'll be back and he's like no it's what does he say it's like you always say i'll be back or something like that you've been back enough you've been back enough and then arnold schwarzenegger goes yippee kaye and it's just like oh my god and then a guy runs up i don't remember who it is but then he says Who's going to come next, Rambo? And it's like, what? Like, yeah. it's just bad. Yeah, and like I say, if, if it had been one line uh, it, that could have been good for a chuckle or a smirk, I think it would have been okay. But, um, you know, when Trench shows up in the mine, he says, I'm back. Cued to the Terminator score. That's like right. a, br- a brief snippet of the Terminator score. That's yeah. right. The, the, the opening. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's right. Kind of thing, yeah. Which, and again, if... If that had been the only scene, I think I would have been, you know, pumping my fist and saying that's that's pretty awesome. You can never fault Arnold Schwarzenegger for saying I'm back yeah. or I'll be back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's certainly done it in enough as films, but um, <laughs> you know, this is at a point where, uh, you know, after the reveal, um, Terry Crews as Hail Caesar has said, uh, you know, your ass is terminated. Um, yeah, yeah. And so there's already been a few of these jokes, and then they they just keep coming and. You know, one-liners only work when there's one of them. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And these movies have done nothing to give him a fun new one. It's just like, let's just trot out the greatest hits. And you know what? One is okay. But yeah, when there's like four in this movie, it's just kind of embarrassing. And it's not like they're giving him a lot of interesting things to do just with this character. I actually think Bruce Willis is given a character with more potential to do fun things like I don't even really know how to define the trench character. It's it's Arnold. He's pretty yeah, he's pretty much defined as uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger cameo. Yeah, whereas I feel like Bruce Willis's character Church, he's kind of this skeezy CIA guy. There's a lot of dark shades to him. He could be villainous. Like there's a lot more room to play with him as a character. Yeah. Which is why they don't just throw around, you know, just catchphrases for Bruce Willis because you can actually write him a bit of a character and look Bruce Willis looks like he's sleepwalking through this movie for the most part. This this was, 
Uh, and say what you will, this is one of my favorite stages of Bruce Willis's career where you got the impression he was just, you know, people were cutting him checks for $5 million and he was just showing up in studios for yeah. four days, five days at a time and just mailing in performances as, you know, uh, you know, sneering Bruce Willis. Yeah, this uh, is like, I think, one year maybe before G.I. Joe Retaliation where he shows up and just like he's playing the original G.I. Joe. And he can't even be bothered growing a beard. <laughs> he just shows up looking the exact same as in this movie. Yeah, he, you know, I, I think it's probably I, the same wardrobe. He, he was probably cranking out like four or five movies a year. Yeah. At, around this this stage, I, I think he's thankfully dialed it back a little bit in in recent years. Not really. He's just gone straight to video, so you don't see them as much. Yeah, maybe. I think his last theatrical movie was the Death Wish remake, and beyond that, uh, he's got the new M Night Shyamalan movie Glass coming up. But Bruce Willis is mostly a straight to video guy at this point. And more often than not, he looks bored to death in these movies. Yeah, exactly. Like I say, he's just like, yeah, yeah, here's my line, give me the check, I'm out of here. It's so weird he didn't come back for the third one. Because uh, I don't know why he wouldn't. This would be just a couple days shooting. <laughs> and I feel like the paycheck was probably worth it. I don't know what more we can say. It's a shame, given that this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know what more we can say about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, uh, this in... movie, he's so limited. Like, it's just quote like i don't know what else to, there is to say about the character he's not really given interesting things to do aside from you know a couple of little fun action beats i think when we talk about part three he actually has some fun character elements so yeah i guess we've got to move on so wait i mean so we've already talked a little bit about um about bruce willis's character how did you think that Arnold schwarzenegger's character compared to the other big i won't say cameo but the big uh, bring back it with Chuck Norris as the lone wolf booker. Oh, I mean, okay. My familiarity with Chuck Norris is pretty slim. I've seen the first mi uh, Missing in Action movie and I didn't really care for it that much, so I never even watched the sequels. And this is coming from someone who in their teen years watched lots of terrible action movies and would still watch the sequels. So Missing in Action really didn't do it for me. Um, I've seen Way of the Dragon with Bruce Lee um, which I think maybe had some different names. I think it's also called Return of the Dragon, and I think maybe even Revenge of the Dragon. But, like, they have the big fight in that. But you've never seen Delta Force? I've never seen Delta Force, or, uh, was it Code of Silence? Invasion USA? Invasion USA. Hellbound? No, The Octagon. Or Walker, Texas Ranger? None of those? I think I've probably seen an episode or two of All Walker, right, so, Texas Ranger. So, well, Ranger. you're... you're... I don't think that's a negative. So you're coming into Chuck Norris with fresh eyes, with, yeah, yeah. with green eyes. I really, I, when I saw this movie, I'd only seen two movies and maybe an episode or two of Walker, Texas Ranger. And I mean, I was kind of excited to see him being brought into it. I think it's, you know, a little groan inducing how, again, they have to throw in references to, what is it? Lone Wolf McQuaid? Is that the movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but whatever, it's fine. And he's cued to the uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly soundtrack, which was... <laughs> Odd, because he's not a Western star. <laughs> I feel like oh, they sure really... he is. Is he? Yeah, he's been in, he's been in a few. But movies. I feel like they wanted Clint Eastwood for that role. <laughs> yeah, they probably did. Uh, but, you know, I, I it was a little bit on the nose when, when Chuck Norris delivered a Chuck Norris joke about... Yeah, that was his uh, wife's idea. Really? Yeah, Chuck Norris's wife was the one that pitched that to Stallone. Oh, well. And so, yeah. You know what? It was still better than Schwarzenegger's lines. But, like, did you think Chuck Norris was fun in this movie? It was kind of weird that he was there. <laughs> Like, did he feel like he was having fun? You know what he felt like? I, I I felt like he showed up 
as a cameo like three or four times. Like every time, yeah. every time he showed up and then he left. Yeah. I thought, well, that was kind of fun. Sure. And then he'd show up again. And then I'd be like, okay, he had a little bit more to do. Um, I thought the first time he showed up where he basically shows up, says, you know, what are you doing here? Which was a fair question. I mean, what was he do- right. doing at a fake Cold War era city? Right. Um, just at the right time. Uh, you know, he delivers a Chuck Norris joke and then and some, then some ex- exposition about yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme's character. Then says, I work alone and he leaves. And Stallone says, thanks for showing up. Yeah. And I thought, man... They should just leave it there. But then yeah. he shows up again uh, two or three times. Yeah, during the airport shootout and then at the near the end of the movie. And I don't know. Like, he's fine. I really can't even say that much. Like, I don't have the nostalgia for Chuck Norris. So maybe people do really got a lot out of that. But to me, I think, like, Terry Crews is more fun to watch in this movie than Chuck Norris. Yeah, although Chuck Norris did lay down some pretty serious mayhem in the airport. But I feel like that's all part of a joke anyway. And I think this movie <laughs> has a bit of a problem in that it uses both of its... It's it's kind of two big action guest stars in Chuck Norris and Schwarzenegger as like deus ex machina devices who just kind of drop in out of nowhere just to save the day. It's like the script couldn't even figure out how to get these guys out of trouble. They said to throw in a guest star to save the day. Yeah, and that's probably fair fair criticism. You know, if they were going to have them in there as cameos, they probably should have just kept them as cameos. And if they were going to have them in there as characters, they probably should have developed those characters a bit more. Yeah. And the movie was written by Richard Wank, who um, he uh, works with uh, Anton Fuqua a lot, but because he, he wrote the Equalizer films. He wrote... Uh, the Magnificent Seven remake. Uh, he did Jack Reacher 2, which really stinks, actually. The first first <laughs> one's great, but Jack Reacher 2's not good. And he also wrote The Mechanic, which, of course, was directed by Simon West. So right. it makes a lot of sense why he's on this movie. But, I, yeah, I just feel like he didn't write interesting things for his guest stars. Like, I think the camera loves them. I think Simon West gives them a lot of fanfare when they show up on camera. But then they don't really have that much to actually do that's interesting or mm-hmm. say. But I will say there is an exception to this rule, and that is Van Damme as the villain. I think Van Damme, aside from the big action opening, has the best scene in the movie. In his first appearance, where he, you know, him and his men like surround the uh, Expendables, have them all laying down. He's holding Liam Hemsworth hostage. Van Damme is just perfect, and I love how he's hamming it up. He's doing weird things with his performance. He just, yeah, he does chew the screen up quite a bit. Yeah, like, I have a lot of enthusiasm for Jean-Claude Van Damme. I was thinking about it before I saw this movie. I was going back and doing a bit of research. I was watching some of the Van Damme movies I hadn't seen, like Kickboxer and Death Warrant. Um, Growing up when I was younger, I had a huge amount of affection for Van Damme. And in my pea brain... I could never quite wrap my head around why he wasn't a huge star. Like, I, in my mind, I was like, Van Damme should be, like, a megastar. He was a megastar. Not really. You go back and look at the box office on his movies, he was actually not a megastar at all. Well, I think of him as a megastar. <laughs> Me too, right? Like, Van Damme I always liked, even though when I go through, the, and I keep track of all the movies I've seen in my life, which is, I know, weird and obsessive, but I was going through and look at my rankings and ratings and stuff, and I didn't like a lot of Van Damme's movies. Like, you know, stuff like Maximum Risk or The Quest or... I didn't like Double Impact. Like, a lot of these movies I thought were junk or nowhere to run. But I always really liked him because he always does interesting things on screen. Like, he's not ashamed to look goofy or ridiculous. So he'll really put himself out there. And this was a this was a weird time in Van Damme's career, too. Because, 
Uh, he had not really had much of a comeback at this point. I think he was doing straight-to-video stuff or limited-release stuff. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think maybe The Replicant was around this time. Um, that's around 2001. He did, in 2008, he did JCVD, which yeah. was, uh, that, I think it that... was set up as a comeback, but it didn't really break through. Like, we both saw it. It, it was it was okay. It was good. I mean, I, I thought it highlighted his acting skills, certainly. Sure. Uh, a, little, a little interesting bit of trivia. Uh, Scott Adkins, uh, who played uh, kind of the, the secondary baddie yeah. uh, in this movie, um, he's kind of a, a journeyman, straight-to-video action star. Although uh, he did have a you know, reasonably sized role in Doctor Strange. Where he played the villain's uh, sidekick. Yeah, he, I mean, he he's done a bunch of stuff. He when when he's the lead, I should say. He, yeah, yeah, he's generally um on the on the DVD cover. Right. Not yeah. on the movie poster. He's starring in like Jarhead Three. But one of the movies, yeah, exactly. One of the movies they did was uh, I think Hard Target Two. Okay. Which yeah. was of course a Van Damme movie. Do you think they bonded over that? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I certainly hope so. I mean, how do you feel about Van Damme? Like, are you a big fan of his back catalog? I got a pretty soft spot in my heart for Van Damme. Yeah. He's just, uh, no one can throw a spin kick like that guy can. I, in this movie, I, I was a little disappointed that at no point did he do the splits. I know. I wonder if he's aged out of it now. Um, what are your favorite Van Damme movies? My favorite Van Damme, well, Hard Target. Uh, I love Time Cop. Um, as far as like low budget sci-fi goes, Cyborg is amazing. I'm not a Cyborg You don't fan. like Cyborg? No. Uh, uh, Kickboxer. yeah. yeah. Kickboxer's good, um, and then uh, I always get Kickboxer and uh, Bloodsport. And Bloodsport mixed up, but also uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Lionheart. Yeah, I mean Bloodsport was probably one of the first movies that basically was a video game. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I mean, I really like those tournament martial arts movies he did. That, that trilogy, I guess. Although I guess the Quest kind of counts as that too. It's not as good. Yeah. Anyways, I mean, just just going over the movies. That Van Damme starred in. I you mean, gotta give points to Sudden Death, too. I think Sudden Death is really underrated. Yeah. And I will never stop blowing don't, the trumpet. Don't say it. For Double Team. I knew you'd say it. It's a horrible movie. <laughs> Double Team is a total blast. And I also have to say, I have a lot of nostalgia, probably misplaced, for Street Fighter. Which I, was a movie that meant so much to me when I was 13. I kind of have a lot of nostalgia for Street Fighter as well. I think I went to see it with you, actually. Uh, it's possible. Um, <laughs> we were... I mean, his big, uh, you know, rouse the troops speech in that is legendary. I love Van Damme in this movie. I love how he's walking around with glasses for almost the entire movie. And he actually rearranged the big final fight with uh, Stallone. And I think he's having a blast in this movie. I wish he was in it more, and I wish his character, Villain, very subtle name, had more to do. Like, I would have liked to have seen him just interact with the crew more. Um, Mel Gibson's in the third one, and he is, he's a lot more of a verbal villain. I would have liked to have seen Van Damme get to bounce off these guys more, because I think he's, I mean, he's definitely up to it. Yeah, what I will say about Van Damme as a villain, and I guess it's not just Van Damme, but the whole... Uh, gang that he's leading the Sangs again on the nose for you French speakers out there. Right. I, I can't think of a group of people with you know in in general and Van Damme in particular as um, Villain who are more oppressively evil <laughs> and incompetent at combat than than Villain 
and his gang. Yeah. Well, do you think it's kind of like they're just like, <laughs> you know, like a big fish in a small pond? Like when you surround them with like villagers who are helpless, they can easily dominate them. But when like a couple well-trained mercenaries show up, they just fall apart. So, I mean, here's what I understand about Valaine, the mm-hmm. character. Valaine. There's just one thing? There's there's more than one thing, but here's the, the main thing I don't understand about Valaine. Uh, is, so he's clearly got the resources, I'm assuming through some black market means, sure. of uh, hiring and paying, I want to say, a team of combat experts, although all they seem to do is get shot and miss. They call him a one-man cartel. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. But they all have the same neck tattoo. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like a one-man cartel. That seems like a multi-person cartel. Well, he did say, I like symbol. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but so he can buy all this equipment. Uh, he can hire all these baddies. So why can't he just hire some miners and, you know, and buy some mining equipment? Why does he have to kidnap villagers in order to work the mines? That seems like... It's totally unnecessary. It also seems like the Expendables won. <laughs> it sure does. Where they were taking the villagers and making them, you know, punch cocaine plants or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, you don't want to be a villager in one of these movies because you'll just be pushed around for no reason, uh, kidnapped for no reason at all, yeah. to do some task that makes no sense. Like, if you have state-of-the-art military equipment and you're, uh, you know, mining whatever it is, 400 tons of plutonium that you're going to sell at $4 a kilo or $4 million yeah. a kilo. Um, you know, why do you have to kidnap villagers and have them dig the mine with a shovel? <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No. What did you think of his fight with Stallone? Did it deliver what it should have? You know, I thought it was uh, pretty good. It was, um, I thought the conceit that it had where, uh, he comes out and he's he says, you know, what are you? Uh, are you a man or a sheep? Right. And he throws his guns down. And then Stallone says, well, I'll man you up. And throw, right. throws his guns to, down too. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. It, it had some good high impact hand to hand. I thought that um, the, the end of the fight where Van Damme had Stallone's knife and... Uh, Stallone had that length of chain. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, it was. It was cool. And yeah, I got no complaints about that fight. I think my only complaint, and it's not even about the fight itself, it's at placing it after Jason Statham has thrown Scott Atkins into the rotor of a helicopter. That death was so amazing. That then you follow <laughs> with John Clyde Van Damme getting stabbed and you're like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> it just felt like not a little underwhelming compared to what had come before. Yeah, that's true. The uh, the the Scott Adkins through the helicopter rotor was a pretty sweet death scene. Yeah, I mean, I guess the Van Damme one, it's more poetic justice considering what he did to uh, Liam Hemsworth, which was amazing. You know, like spin kicking the knife into Liam Hemsworth's chest. That was I love that. Yeah, that was great. Um, we would be remiss, actually. We should also cover the other guest star of this movie, which is Nan Yu, showing up as Maggie. The Expendables, not big on female cast members. Um, <laughs> no, not not big on women in general. Yeah, it seems to me that's their general philosophy. Um, but what did you think of Nan Yu? Because this is a character I think would be easy to ignore in the sense that, like, it's weird how... Well, certainly everyone in the movie did. <laughs> That's very true. But also, they did not try to cast someone with any sort of name value. At least not on these shores. I wasn't familiar with her, were you? No. Yeah. So, I mean, 
you would have thought maybe they would have gone after, say, like Michelle Yeoh or just someone who has a little bit of marquee name value just because the cast is so filled out with people you have familiarity with. Um, even Liam Hemsworth, I suppose. But, I mean, what did you think of Nan Yu? Well, I mean, I thought Nan Yu, the actress, did a did a fine job with the character. I'm actually surprised that she's not in more things that I've seen. Yeah. Because um, she, she seemed like she was... Um, pretty competent both in the dramatic scenes and in the and in the action scenes the the character itself though i thought it was um a, a, a little bit unfortunate that uh billy the kid liam hemsworth gets killed they kind of replace him with this new uh character um maggie the first thing that barney ross uh says when church um suggests that she's going to join the team is a woman? I know. Like, ugh. I actually just the other night watched the original Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, actually in theaters. Uh, and it's from 1954. And they have the same reaction to a female scientist being on their ship. Like, this is like 50-something years later. Yeah, and then, you know, I mean, they establish her, uh, her character, uh, at least through exposition, as being very good. Like all of the other Expendables at... Uh, you know, combat and fighting and jumping motorcycles over stuff. And then throughout the entire movie, uh, Sylvester Stallone's character was treating her like a hostage that he was rescuing, like telling her when to run, telling her when to shoot, telling her when to not shoot, telling her when to save her ammo. And I thought that, and she was the only character that, he or anyone else did that with the the all of the other characters you got the impression that they're you know a, a band of uh basically individualist psychopaths uh <laughs> who won't who won't let anyone tell anyone else what to do but for for her i mean they're just kind of bossing her around the whole movie and i thought it was i thought it developed the attitude towards women that the the first one had yeah and she's on the receiving end of a lot of the rapiness from the Dolph Lundgren's character which is uncomfortable. There's like one scene where they're talking about like what foods they would want to have before they died. Dolph Lundgren says, well, Swedish, uh, like a uh, baby seal and wheel ass. A whale ass, yeah. But I'd die to eat some Chinese or something like that. Something along those lines. And then it's just like this awkward pause. And I could feel the energy in the room I was watching the movie. And I'm just like, Ugh. like it just feels <laughs> uncomfortable to see. And, you know, if this is a movie from like 1984... I'd be like, yeah, they would use lines like that back then. In 2012, when this was released, it's like, okay, guys, you probably shouldn't be throwing that one in there. Well, I mean, well, certainly not when you pretty much only have, you know, you have uh, basically three female characters in the entire movie. And she's have, the only one who really matters to yeah, the movie. You, you have, you know, Charisma Carpenter playing Lacey, who is Lee Christmas's fiance. Um you know, and she's in one scene. She's in one scene. They established her in the first movie as a, you know, a, a woman who is totally devoid of agency of, of her own abilities. Yeah. Um, and and she's in this one called yeah, like a cheater. Yeah. Uh, not just called a cheater, but you know, the guy's friend says that. Yeah. To her fiance, and then you have um, uh, Amanda Ooms, who is playing, I guess, the leader of. Uh, the village the village women who are the only people left i guess women are so weak that the even though they're trying to dig 
<laughs> this mine out desperately and they're kidnapping men and working them to death yeah they leave all the women along with the children right um but, you the, know. but the expendables roll into their town and the women who are like want to protect their children this is some like warrior woman shit you know this is like this should be like kind of like mad max fury road where it's like they're gonna protect their kids at all costs so they open fire in the expendables and the Expendables are just, like, laughing, like, <laughs> yeah. we should just stand in front of their guns. Yeah, these guys can't hit anything. And then, get, and then all of the Expendables just leave cover. Yeah. And stand in front of them. And they say, yeah, we're here to we're here to save you or whatever. And then uh, and then the, the women, you know, invite them inside and show them the children. Yeah. And, uh... We're all and locked so, in, like, Harry Potter's closet. Yeah, and say, oh, please, please, Sylvester Stallone will really help us. Yeah. It's like, come on. These women should at least be able to fire a gun straight. Yeah. I feel like these would be women who are a little bit battle-hardened at this point in their lives. Yeah, and, and I actually, I don't know... I don't know how Albania is these days, but <laughs> the Albania of this movie seems very violent. <laughs> and otherwise empty. <laughs> well, that's yeah. Well, that's the other weird thing. I mean, Albania is, um, you know, it's not the most developed of the European countries, right? Um, you know, but it is a, a a modern country with a tech industry yeah. and a tourism industry, uh, and um, you know, I'm pretty sure the Albanian. Uh, democracy, the, the the you know the parliamentary democracy or whatever form of government they have in Albania, which is not uh, you know Van Dam. Uh, yeah, it's not Van Dam. They would probably notice if gangs of thugs <laughs> were, kidnapped every man in town yeah, for like not just one town, like but villages all around, and were working them to death in a plutonium mine, like. I wonder how I actually wonder how Albanians feel about this movie. Yeah, I would be curious to know. Um, you know, and it also has this weird town that's designed to look like an American town that the Russians or something were using for training drills in the Cold War. I guess it's so weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the Universal Studios Bulgaria backlot. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's so weird. I mean, I will say it's an okay idea in the sense that it's an odd place to set your action movie, and I think it's interesting. I don't think it's particularly con like conveyed or, or, or showcased in an it's interesting not, it's way. It's not used in any way. There's no, no real reason to put it there as opposed to putting it anywhere else. That's why I feel like it must have been a backlot. It must have been, yeah. Like, it must have been an existing set they could use, because otherwise there's no reason for it. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe Children of Men had just done wrapped up. And... <laughs> oh, good call. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> In the background, you can see Clive Owen in a boat at one point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I want to move away from the the baddies and and kind yeah. of go back to the, some of the action set pieces. I mean, were there any other set pieces besides the final battle between Barney Ross and Villain and the and, big and, airport and, shootout? Yeah, and the, yeah, and the airport shootout and the opening, and then the, I guess the opening scene. Were, was there anything else that stood out for you in this movie? Not really. Like, there's I know a big shootout in the middle that Chuck Norris saves him from. I don't know, like there was, I feel like the opening delivers the big, the big showcase stuff. The ending tries to go big again, just not quite as well as the, as the opening. Uh, in the middle, I don't know, there's, yeah, a couple little skirmishes, there's a fist fight in a bar. I don't know, there was nothing that was that memorable to me. I don't know, how about you? Uh, what really stood out to me is the um, Jason Statham's fight where he's dressed as a priest yeah that was and cool he, yeah and he's got the uh the smoking sensor yeah uh 
I don't know why he needed it to be smoking to complete the costume, <laughs> but he, you know, it has just what seems to be an infinite number of knives. Uh, I, I thought that was done really well. Yeah, I did enjoy that. It was a great image, and I think this movie needed a few more of those. Like, I think the original may have done a better job showcasing these stars as kind of icons. I don't know that this one did a great job of that, but it did in moments like that. Like, having Jason Statham, you know, there in the monk's robe... That's a great image. And I think they did what they succeeded with Van Damme. Some of the others, not so much so. And I have to say, they gave uh, Stallone's character a very unfortunate wardrobe in this movie. His well, Expendables gear is really dorky. Well, I, I, <laughs> I was laughing about it originally. The pre-Van Damme mission that they went on to retrieve the, the map to the plutonium. Where they're dressed like the Inglorious Bastards. I thought they were they were dressed like something out of a Macy's catalog or something <laughs> like that. Like they were wearing like their combat slacks, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it almost looked like a World War Two movie at that point. Yeah, and and I wouldn't have noticed it if you hadn't pointed it out. But at some point, once the action starts going, yeah. Um, their their wardrobe just kind of, you know, the scene cuts and their wardrobe has changed. Yeah, they're in their Expendables uniforms. A little continuity error there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's an error so much as just. Uh... It doesn't really make any sense. Someone not really caring. Um, was there anything else you want to touch on in this movie? Is there anything that jumps out? Like, do you feel like? Well, I, I do want to. I feel like it would be a shame on uh, on a Schwarzenegger podcast to leave it all negative. Um, hey, you are more positive than I am. Yeah, you're, I mean, you were quite positive on it. I, I did like it. I did like the fact that when he went to open the the door of the smart car, he just ripped, ripped it off, ripped yeah. it off its hinges. I thought that was a nice touch, but. I mean, besides that... Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger just looked kind of tired in this movie. He looked a little tired. He was shooting this the same time, I believe, he was doing The Last Stand. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, you know, we haven't done The Last Stand on the podcast yet, but when you see that movie, like, Schwarzenegger is definitely not in very good shape. And you can kind of feel that here, whereas, like, when we talked about Killing Gunther, he looked great. Yeah, he looks fantastic. This is that. definitely Schwarzenegger's transition you know, away from the political life back onto the big screen. And he just isn't quite in that Arnie shape we expect. And he just looks kind of tired and worn in this movie. I think he would be a lot more with it even in uh, Escape Plan like a year or two later. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that Stallone, I don't know if I really need to get it. He did have a couple of good lines. I, I did like that opening, uh, that opening line that kind of sets it off uh, where uh, uh, Billy the Kid's been been killed and they say what do you want to do and he says track him find him kill him that's his best line in the movie yeah, yeah probably i complained when we did the expendables one that i felt like barney ross was not a character that stallone had not figured out who this character was and now i regret saying that because <laughs> <laughs> sitting through this one and seeing barney ross just mope for two hours or an hour and 42 minutes straight i was like oh stallone this is not what this movie needs this movie's really goofy like, it is a super goofy movie, and it does not need this anchor weighing it down of just, like, this character who's miserable. Like, who wants to watch a miserable character in this movie? Yeah, he wasn't He wasn't a ton of fun. He was kind of mopey. Like, he was doing, like, First Blood when I want to see, like, Rambo 3. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't want to see him, like, crying over a friend getting blown up by a shoebox. Yeah, all this needed, this just needed Colonel Troutman there. 
<laughs> well, that would have helped, actually, if a random army guy showed up and just started talking about how awesome Barney Ross was. I'd be like, now this is the scene I needed. Yeah. Because this movie doesn't convince me that Barney Ross is awesome, even though he does lots of cool action stuff. And actually, I will say, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, you know, that this jumped to my mind because I would have hated to have missed this. There is a scene early in the movie where Stallone does the finger gun thing where he's like, you know, him and Jason Statham get caught by a bunch of bad guys. And then he like does finger point guns at them. And then uh, Chris Hemsworth opens fire from afar, but it makes it look like Stallone is shooting them down with his fingers. His name's not Chris Hemsworth either. Did I say Chris Hemsworth? Yeah. <laughs> it's wishful thinking. I wish it was Chris Hemsworth. It was Liam Hemsworth. But anyways, you know the scene I'm talking about where Stallone is using these finger guns. I remember they marketed that scene a lot, and then it was in the movie, of course. Um, I hate it. I think it's so badly done, and it's embarrassing looking for Stallone. They had a similar scene in uh, the movie The Losers a couple years, I think, earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, where I believe it was Chris Evans did it. And it was done really well. He was directed really cleverly. It was funny and fast. And this is really lunky looking, and it's like this really awkward Stallone staggering around with his fingers pointing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great. Uh, I guess they just did that as a way to introduce um, <laughs> that Barney Ross likes to do finger pointing. Well, introduce uh, Chris Hemsworth or Liam Neeson or whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> We're just dreaming of more talented actors for this movie. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I will say, I think it really needs to be said, though, just as we get to the end of this review, is that I missed Mickey Rourke so much in this movie. Yeah, this this movie could have done with some Mickey. Yeah, I, I think losing... And not the mouse. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I think the loss of Jet Li... Was that your Liam Hemsworth voice? <laughs> oh, hey guys, let's cooperate! I'm a sniper! <laughs> I think the loss of Jet Li, after the first little bit... And then, um, and then Mickey Rourke. It does kind of hurt the movie. Like I don't think that um, that uh, Chuck Norris is bringing a lot of energy, and I don't think that Schwarzenegger's you know boosted bit makes up for the loss of these major players in the movie. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts? Like, where does The Expendables two you know kind of rank for you now? Now that you've rewatched it this many years later, well, I still enjoy. It. I actually think it's still a pretty competently directed action movie. Yeah. And- uh, I don't feel the least bit bad about having watched it again, which is more than I can say about uh, some of the other movies that we've watched on this podcast, which sure. have spoiled my childhood memories in a lot of ways. Like the villain? I mean the villain? <laughs> the villain. <laughs> Twins uh, yeah, kind of yeah. comes to mind. But yeah. uh, but on the whole, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed the movie, and I think that, you know, what we've said here has been pretty fair, and, you know, it, it Definitely is not the greatest movie ever made. I don't think the Library of Congress is going to be calling anytime soon, but uh, it it does what it does, and it does it pretty well. On your rewatch, did you enjoy it more or less than the first? I'll have to say, I mean, put it this way. As a movie, I think I enjoyed the second one yeah. a little bit more. Uh, as a bizarre, madcap <laughs> slice of total insanity, yeah. uh, I think the first one is a cut above. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I really enjoyed rewatching the first one um, because I was just like, I had completely forgotten about how insane the movie was. And so reliving some of these bizarre line readings and Mickey Rourke monologues and all that, I was like, this is great. Like, I love this. I totally watched this movie again. This one, 
I enjoyed watching it. Like, I would never say I was bored. You know, I was always looking forward to the next action scene or when Van Damme was going to do something more. Um, but it just didn't have, I guess, maybe the novelty or the, the weirdness of the first one. It felt, in its kind of stabs at respectability, not as much fun as the first one. Like, the first yeah. one felt like it was made kind of by outsiders, whereas this one felt like it was a little more, like, let's make more of a Hollywood movie. And I don't know that I enjoyed it as much for that reason. That's fair. After watching this one, are you looking forward to watching Expendables 3? I'm I'm curious to watch Expendables 3. I think what sticks in my mind, though, is that, well, number one, it's PG-13, which is a downgrade as far as I'm concerned. If yeah. you're going to make these movies, they got to be rated R. But also, we complained a lot about Chris Hemsworth. Liam Neeson, <laughs> Liam Hemsworth in this movie. <laughs> Chris Neeson. Chris Neeson. We complained a lot about him in this movie and how kind of bland he is. There's a lot of those characters in part three because they bring in, like Ronda Rousey is at least an, an actress who's formidable um, physically. So that's that's a plus. But yeah, like there's a whole team led by Kellen Lutz who's just like dead wood and he's the most charismatic one of the bunch. Yeah, but the movie does have Kelsey Grammer. It has Kelsey Grammer. It has a... Okay, we talked about Bruce Willis phoning it in. It has the most phoned-in Harrison Ford performance of all time. <laughs> well, let's not spoil yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my memory. But, uh, you know, I'm also just looking forward to talking about Mel Gibson in that movie. Because mm-hmm. I think he had some of the crazed energy that Van Damme had, to the best of my memory. So I'm looking forward to revisiting it for that reason. But the youth factor and the PG-13, eh, that's not as exciting to me. I mean, I'm looking forward to revisiting that movie uh, as well. I am curious to see if the women hating is lifted a bit in the part three. I certainly, I certainly hope so. I actually don't remember that much uh, about the third one, whereas I, I had fairly fond memories of the first and the second. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that's a great sign. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see how Kelsey Grammer does. There's a reason there was no Expendables 4. <laughs> so, okay, I think that wraps up the Expendables 2. What are we doing next episode, Tony? I think we're going to take it back to uh, to the 80s, although maybe not one of Schwarzenegger's A-list 80s movies. And we're going to see him pair up with Jim Belushi <laughs> in Red Heat. <laughs> if you thought Jim Belushi and a dog was awesome. <laughs> I'm really curious to revisit Red Heat because I have almost no memory of it. Kind of like Expendables 3, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I'm. I Red Heat is not one I've watched a bunch of times. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to... Uh, throwing it in the old Betamax as well. <laughs> Very cool. If you've enjoyed the podcast, wherever you happened to have gotten it from, Stitcher or iTunes or any other place where quality podcasts are hosted. Um, yeah, please... why are we there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was snuck in under the radar. Yeah. Right? Uh, like an expendable in the night. <laughs> That's right. Like Kelsey Grammer <laughs> in the early evening. In a Tilly hat. <laughs> yeah. If you liked it, please uh, leave us a review. Uh, five stars is better than four, but four is better than three. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And yeah, your comments do help us with ranking on any of these podcast platforms. Yeah. They'll boost us up in the rankings. Gets Maybe... our gets our Schwarzenegger-related wisdom out there. That's right. That's right. That always helps. Um, and so, you know, you can also find me on Twitter at KMV as in Van Damme Smith. And uh, you can also, of course, find Tony at... I'm Tony G at ArnieGen.com. And of course, you can come visit on our website, ArnieGen.com. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, bookmark it. Yeah, bookmark it, sure. Um, and, uh, okay, so we'll be back with Red Heat. <laughs>